So you all realize that it's been five weeks since I was up here. So I got a lot of preaching stored up. <laughs> so we may be here a while. No, just kidding. Um, well, while these guys, we're, we're going to uh, dive back in at least for a couple of uh, weeks. Um, we're going to continue this, so I'm not, not giving up on this at all. But we're going to dive back into Revelation. And we've been kind of working our way through that. <clears throat> and so, uh, first of all, I want to sort of recap where we were last time, or kind of where we left off. And so, um, the big idea, uh, last time was verses uh, 12 through 17, which was the letter to Pergamum, right? Okay. And so the big idea that came out of this particular letter was that uh, Jesus was commending his church for persevering um, despite the, the fact that they were undergoing persecution and was sort of encouraging them to not compromise, right? To, uh, you know, there was this idolatrous and immoral culture. And the insights that we sort of got out of that were uh, that perseverance is the key even when it gets tough, Right? Oh, this isn't good. Try that for a while. Um, secondly, two areas that we're often uh, tempted to compromise with the world are in the areas of uh, idolatry and immorality. So those are the two things that, you know, worship of money, let's say, or other things, and then clearly immorality. Those are the, that's what tends to kind of knock us off the path. And then uh, finally... Jesus promises that we will have acceptance and fellowship and identity, uh, if not now, then ultimately, eternally. And by remembering that and keeping our focus on that, that helps get us through the time uh, that we're going through now, okay? So that was kind of the, uh, the basis for um, the letter to Pergamum. So... <clears throat> When we talked about that, which, uh, believe it or not, was back on May the 15th, um, I mentioned how part of what John said to that church sounded like it came right out of Acts 15. And so let's take a look at that. And it says, Therefore I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. So what is this? Well, these are the, the four things that the early church, uh, if you recall, was arguing about, okay, well, what do we make the Gentiles do? Because we have all these Gentiles that are coming into the church. And so uh, do we force them to keep all of the law? that we were given, and also worship Jesus? And that was one of the thought, and, and it, a lot of the argument centered around circumcision, right? There was the group that says, well, they need to be circumcised if they're going to be part of this, and another group said, well, no. And so finally, Peter stands up and he says, no, wait a minute. <clears throat> Why are we going to make them try to keep all the laws that we never could keep ourselves? He's saying this is really kind of, stupid. 
We couldn't keep them, so why should we ask them to as well? Really, the only things that we need to, uh, that they should be concerned about are these four things. And these four things related to worship of idols. Okay, these are the things that went on in the pagan temples, right? There was meat that was sacrificed to idols, and uh, the temple prostitutes that were, uh, were part of worship at that time. So, okay, I'm going to have to see if I can make this behave itself. Because right now, it has somehow locked up. And if it won't behave itself, then I'm going to have to go get my computer out of the office and work from that. Right. Very good. <laughs> a job I can handle. <laughs> plan B. It's always good to have plan B. And so it's not unlikely that in this day and age we would look at something like this and go, well, that doesn't seem so bad. I think I could do that. However, it wasn't this day and age, was it? It was back in the city of Thyatira. And, and here's a, just a picture of some of the ruins. Uh, they had an amphitheater as well. Um, one of the things that was so significant, and that's the city we're going to be discussing today is Thyatira, is the fact that there was the, the trade guilds, or unions really, I guess would be another way to look at them, were very, very dominant in that city, and they had a lot of dominance over the local economy. And so, you know, pretty much every imaginable industry that they had that involved manufacturing of any kind was controlled by these guilds. And if you wanted to work, you needed to belong, right? Sounds a lot, like I said, it sounds a lot like labor unions. A lot of places are closed, what they call closed shops, meaning that if you're not part of the union, you can't work. They will not hire you. Um, now, that may not sound so bad, except in order to be a member of these guilds also meant that you had to worship pagan gods that this whole idea of this pagan worship was intricately connected to the guilds. They held their meetings and they had common meals in the pagan temples themselves. And so two of the central aspects that were required in pagan worship was eating the food that was offered to the idols and illicit sexual relations. So any Christian who worked in, this, you know, in that particular craft or trade was presented with a pretty severe problem. 
his faithfulness to Jesus is going to affect his calling and his livelihood and even his ability to feed his family if he chooses to be faithful rather than to succumb. Now, geographically, the city of Thyatira, you can see here on the map, it's number four. Um, it's about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum, and it's on the road to Sardis. Okay? And this was a great business location. All right, this was a wonderful place to be, which is why these guilds flourished. Okay, so because they were, it was on this road. Uh, this was just the perfect place for trade to occur, and so there was a lot of uh, great things that happened if you were in Thyatira. Uh, you may remember that in Acts it refers to uh, a woman named Lydia, who was a seller of purple cloth. And she was from Thyatira, okay? And the city was really well known for its purple dye. That was one of the, the notable things about it as in addition to these trade guilds. It was also, uh, they also were involved in emperor worship as all of the cities we've talked about were so far. Uh, but there were other pagan gods as well. And uh, Terimnos, which was also known as Apollo, son of Zeus, was the, supposed to be the guardian of this city, okay? So it wasn't a coincidence, and we're gonna see this in a minute, that Jesus specifically proclaims himself as the son of God, sort of beginning this letter with this uncompromising challenge to paganism and affirming the definitive, absolute uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And so let's look at now the letter this is in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, faith, service, and patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her fornication. Beware, I am throwing her on a bed and those who commit adultery with her. I am throwing into great distress unless they repent of her doings. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. To everyone who conquers and continues to do my works to the end, I will give authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod as when clay pots are shattered. Even as I also received authority from my Father, to the one who conquers, I will also give the morning star. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Okay, so that's the letter. 
So now let's break this down a little bit and sort of um, look at some of what John, uh, or what Jesus is saying through John. So we look first at verse uh, 18. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Well, once again, John's going back to the very beginning of, of Revelation and using um, some of the language that was in chapter 1 to describe Jesus. And if you'll note, he uses a different aspect of that description in most of these letters. Okay, And so he is identified here as the Son of God, which is kind of reminiscent to this heavenly Son of Man that we see in the book of Daniel. Right? And this is the only instance in Revelation that Jesus refers to himself this way. So it's always interesting to look at those times when something is unique, right? The eyes that are like blazing fire suggest that Jesus has this penetrating insight and power to judge. And I think the feet that are like burnished bronze emphasize the strength that he has. Uh, a noticeable quality in this city where the Metal Workers Guild in particular wielded enormous power. All right, so moving on to verse 19. I know your deeds and that you are now doing more than you did at first. What's this say? Well, it says that Jesus knows what all these churches are up to. He knows what they're doing or what they're not doing. And so he spells these deeds out in four terms that sort of follow. He commends these Christians, first of all, for their love, and that's to both God and people. He commends them for their faith. He commends them for their service to others. And finally, for their perseverance in trusting God in the midst of difficult circumstances. And if you think about it, don't those characteristics effectively sum up the Christian life? Faith service, or excuse me, love, faith, service to others, and perseverance. And it's interesting to note that there's this contrast between the church in Ephesus where their first works were greater than their last. So they're going downhill. Whereas he's noting that this church now in Thyatira is really going uphill, that their current works are greater than their earlier ones were. Then in verse 20 and then again in 24, he makes reference to uh, Jezebel. He says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, Satan, and then also mentions Satan's so-called deep secrets. Well, Jezebel is an Old Testament reference. So if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you may not know who Jezebel was. She was the wife of King Ahab. And uh, she had a very, very negative influence on Israel uh, because she was devoted to the Canaanite god Baal. And uh, she very, very aggressively opposed God and God's prophets. Okay, interesting story in, uh, about um, not Isaiah. Who am I trying to? Elijah, thank you. Uh, and, and his encounter with Jezebel. So if you want to go and read that. But uh, for the reason she's brought up here is that because of her previous, um, the way she acted and the way you know it's recorded, she became this sort of enduring symbol 
of idolatry and wickedness, right? So she's just, you know, you sort of mention Jezebel, and that's what you're referring to, is this idea of someone who uh, idolized other gods and who uh, was pretty wicked to her core. And so the Jeze whoever this Jezebel is in the Thyatiran church is similarly advocating some sort of compromise with paganism, okay? Uh, now, it's interesting to note, too, that I think a lot of times we can make these compromises sound really pious, can't we? We might say, well, you know, after all, there's really, there's truly only one God, so if you were to worship a false God, then I guess really you're sort of worshiping the only, the only God that there is. Now, these are excuses that might be given as to why to belong to these trade guilds. Okay, so remember, that's kind of the overriding thing that's going on here in this letter, is that Christians, for reasons I stated earlier, struggle with that. So these are sort of these rationalizations that come out of this. So, okay, well, you're worshiping a false god, but there's really only one god, so you, actually it's sort of indirectly worshiping God. Kind of maybe makes it sound okay. Or you could say, well, if I were to join in with the pagans in their religious services, then I might be able to witness for Jesus. That really sounds okay. Or you, you could say, well, if I go along with all these heathens, then that will enable Christians to survive rather than to be wiped out by persecution. So now we're getting a little more practical. Or you could say, well, perhaps all religions have something to teach one another. And that we Christians should abandon this arrogant absolutism that we have. And just combine the best of our traditions with the best of the heathen traditions. And then we create this universal faith that answers the needs of all people and all cultures. Does any of this sound familiar? It's false teaching that alleges that what we do with our bodies doesn't matter since it doesn't affect our true spirituality. Well, Jesus begs to differ. <laughs> Regardless of the rationale that's involved, the doctrine is heresy and was not to be tolerated. And here's the thing, and this is hard for us sometimes. Orthodox biblical Christianity is intolerant. Now, that's not to say that Christians should be intolerant of each other, of each other's mistakes, of the idiosyncrasies that we all have, or differences over non-essentials. We talked about this at the men's group the other night, right? What one group believes about speaking in tongues shouldn't affect how you think of them. If you don't agree with them for whatever, whatever their belief may be, that's really a non-essential. Your, your belief about tongues is not going to keep you out, in or out of heaven, right? It's your belief in Jesus that's the key, right? And so as long as we believe in these essentials, we're okay.
So we can't, you know, look down upon someone who just doesn't happen to believe about the non-essentials the same way that we do. But when it comes to clear violations of biblical law and orthodox doctrine, which is the doctrine that we all agree on, the government of the church is required by scripture to put a stop to it before it destroys the church. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Okay. Verses 22 and 23. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Now, this is just a little portion of this. If you were to look at all of the verses together in 22 through 25, he's really addressing three specific groups. First of all, it encourages the faithful Christians who've rejected what Jezebel is, is teaching or trying to teach. Secondly, he pronounces judgment upon Jezebel and her dedicated followers, which are her children. And third, he's warning those who claim to be Christians but are currently being deceived by Jezebel, and he's telling them, Guys, you've got to turn around. This is not right. And that's the wonderful thing about our God. And it just it, it comes out here. If you're currently in the midst of committing adultery with Jezebel or any other kind of sin, if you will repent, turn away from, then God is waiting with open arms. It just takes that choice to make, that decision to turn away from whatever sin you're in. And then finally, in the last uh, few verses, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. I will also give that one the morning star. An overcomer is a person who does God's will to the end of their life. And Jesus is now offering those who overcome, at least in the church of Thyatira, he offers them a double promise. First of all, he's saying that they're going to be given authority over the nations to rule over them with an iron scepter and dash them like pottery. And secondly, he's giving the overcomer the morning star. Now there's a lot of opinions, as you can imagine, in all of the scholarly theological books about what that means. But I think perhaps the, uh, the best way to look at that is to connect that directly to Jesus and to say that you know, this is his delegated authority over all of these powers that have been mentioned and talked about. Richard says I'm right. <laughs> all right. So what can we take away from this? How do we apply this to today? Right? This was written to a church thousands of years ago. So how does it concern us? Well, I'm, let me offer a few ways that I think it does concern us. First of all, we should play to the only audience that really matters. See, the pressure on these believers in Thyatira came primarily from the business community. There's a lot of parallels to our current culture. 
you know, where, where we as Christians are tempted to compromise in order to fit in. I, I'm trying to remember the exact movie. Maybe one of you all will remember. But it's one of the um, movies that I think what came out of the church in Georgia, you know, that did Fireproof and um, those movies. And there was a scene in there where the, the owners of a company would bring in potential candidates for this one job that they had. And they would ask them, would they, you know, if they had this job, would they, basically, would they be willing to lie and falsify some type of information on a shipping form or something? I don't remember the details. I just remember the, the gist of it. Was it courageous? Okay. And they did it with such seriousness that the person really thought, you know, if I say, no, I'm not going to get this job. So candidate after candidate agreed to do this, and they kept interviewing. And finally, you know, one candidate comes in and, you know, says, no, I'm sorry, but I can't do that. And he's the one that got the job. It was a test. And so y you know that's just, that isn't just an isolated incident. It may not occur just like that, but I think we get tested all the time. In every job we do. You know, are you going to do the, the right moral ethical thing or are you going to bend the rules a little bit? And see, at the heart of this temptation lies this desire to be socially acceptable and pleasing to people. Especially the right people. The boss, the co-workers who have influence. And that presents a choice between which audience is the most important. The powerful, influential, in-kids or God. And it's hard because sometimes these powerful, influential people can guarantee a financial future for us. But God is the only one who knows us completely and is truly able to give us lasting rewards. So we need to play to the only audience that really matters. Secondly, sometimes what God expects of us is to keep doing what we've been doing. I think all of us have been deeply influenced by this notion that we've got to always be making progress. We've got to always be moving upward and outward, okay? And so because of that, we assume that we've always got to be doing new and different things for God. Because that's the way that will please God. But I think often... A lot of the time, what God is really expecting us to do and what he's asking us to do is to hang in there and do what you're already doing. It doesn't have to be dramatic or fancy or like someone else's. 
Those four qualities that we talked about a little while ago, love and faith, service and perseverance, those are the things that are central to our faith. Those are the things that we need to be doing. And so there's no need to move away from those basic things, even though they don't seem novel or cutting edge. Third point is that when we dabble with false teaching, we're playing with fire. A 1987 Time Magazine article tells the haunting story of a six-year-old Brazilian girl. One day her father came home with a canister of blue powder that he had purchased from a junk dealer in a city in Brazil. The powder had this beautiful blue glow to it, and the little girl... Um, rubbed it on her skin so she would be blue. And it sparkled when she moved and she just loved the way that it looked. And so when she sat down to eat lunch, she unwittingly ingested some of it. Well, the canister had come from a cancer treatment hospital and was filled with cesium-137, a deadly radioactive powder. And that lovely sparkling blue substance sent this child to her grave. In this story, tragic though it is, illustrates this alluring power of these fatal forces. You know, like this little girl, we can be drawn to embrace what we know we ought to avoid. You know, as, as was the case with the Corinthian congregation, uh, where those who were claiming this super spirituality were causing a lot of the problems they were having, the false teaching within a church can sometimes come from those who are, are attracted to this kind of a secretive, deeper kind of religious experience. And that's why it is so important to guard against um, the widespread influence of false teaching. We've got to avoid trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ and his gospel. Keep in mind that Jesus assures us that we are going to be able to recognize false teachers by the fruit or the works of their lives. And so in the strongest possible terms, he pronounces judgment on Jezebel and those dedicated followers who just absolutely refused to repent and acknowledge that they were doing anything they shouldn't. Now, just a couple of cautions I want to make as we're talking about this idea of Jezebel. First of all, there's nothing in the text that says that Jezebel was a false teacher because she was a woman. Okay? We've got to be very careful to not blame the heresy on her gender. Okay? It was her deceitful teaching that merited comparison with one of the Old Testament's most wicked characters. But you will find in both the Old and New Testament that there were woman there were other woman prophets. Okay? So don't confuse that issue. Don't make this a, a uh, about Jezebel's gender, all right? And second, we've got to be clear about the three groups that were being addressed in this message so as not to confuse what Jesus is saying. 
for example, someone who's wrestling with a false teaching but hasn't totally succumbed to it um, are okay as long as they eventually repent and, and, and turn away from it. And if you're struggling with it, you, you don't need to feel that it's too late. It's never too late. As long as you have breath, it's never too late. So the big idea that's sort of the takeaway from this whole chapter is that Jesus commends his church for trusting and loving God, for serving people, and for persevering in faith, but he's warning of the judgments that's, that is going to come along to the false teaching that promotes idolatry and immorality. Now to close, I want to tell you a little story about... Um, a race that happens every year called the Barkley Marathons. And it is known as the race that eats its young. <laughs> um, in 2015, none of the 40 runners who attempted to finish the 100-mile endurance contest in the mountains of eastern Tennessee completed the race. And it was the first time since 2007 that this, there were no finishers. Now, it's held in, I think, March or April, April, May every year. And there was a finisher this year, one. Uh, and they limit it now to only 40 runners or contestants. All right. And so in 2015, the uh, creator of the event was created in 1986. Gary Cantrell is the creator. And he said, well, the mountains won. He said, I was pleased with the outcome. It's a competition between the humans and the mountains. And in 30 years, 14 out of about 1,100 runners have completed this race. That's a finishing rate of about 1%. And because of that, the Barkley Marathons has, has been labeled the world's hardest race. There's one guy that's won it three times. So it's probably even lower than that if you factor in multiple wins. There's no medical aid station anywhere on the course. Um, it cover, the course itself covers more than twice the elevation gain of Mount Everest over the full 100 miles. So it's five laps around a 20-mile course. And in, do, and in doing so, you would go, it would be like climbing Mount Everest twice. Maggie, you going to do this next year? <laughs> uh, Nikki Rain, a 40-year-old Australian who is an assistant professor of education in Canada, completed one and a half out of the five 20-mile laps this year before succumbing. She said this, you don't come here to be victorious. You come here to be humiliated. It's lonely out there. It's eerie. You have to be comfortable being inside your own head. Everyone comes back pretty broken. I'm going to go there. There, that's good. I think this right, this this particular race offers. Um, a striking parallel to the Christian life, which Paul also described as a race. 
You know, it's pretty easy to get lost or to get confused or to just get weary in the Christian life, on the Christian journey. And sometimes the length of it can really break us down. And, and to be a faithful Christian in Thyatira meant that you were going to have to undergo hardship and suffering. And it wasn't you know, this kind of glorious, headline-making kind of suffering. It was just the day-to-day -day grind of being faithful to Christ's word. It was just the fact of being unemployed and unemployable in the midst of a booming economy. When everyone around you could get work for the simple, small, mere price of burning a little incense, eating a little meat from a pagan altar, and engaging in a little harmless sex between consenting adults. There was no opportunity for some great moral crusade in this suffering. Pretty much everyone just thought you were weird. And night after night, your children would cry out for food. This kind of martyrdom, martyrdom was not very glamorous at all. But those who remained faithful were promised that they would overcome, that they would rule with Jesus Christ. Things would be reversed, and the tables were about to be turned. Christ was coming to save and to judge. Christian journey hasn't changed much since then, but neither has the promise. Jesus is still coming. Pass it on. Amen.